Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are listening to the Nighttime Podcast. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Nighttime. In tonight's episode, I got something really special for you. You may remember my past guest and good friend MJ Benias. He's a Canadian journalist who, like me, is also drawn to unique and captivating stories. But lately, MJ's work has been focused on the fields of cybersecurity, open source investigation, and international espionage. But as you will soon hear, MJ happened upon a story that perfectly bridges the gap between what he's doing and Canadian crime, mysteries, and weird. The story, for the most part, is set in a large home in an upper-class subdivision in Ancaster, Ontario. The large home, its owner, who didn't look much older than 19, and his collection of exotic cars has always been a mystery to his neighbors. But what was going on in the home and how he amassed so much money was probably stranger than they ever would have expected. During an otherwise uneventful morning in 2017, a large joint RCMP and FBI tactical operation occurred on the front porch of the home that would end with 22-year-old Kareem Baratov being taken into custody and many of the neighborhood questions about the owner and his wealth being answered. From fancy cars on his driveway to the many flashy photos on social media, 22-year-old Kareem Baratov has expensive taste. His Instagram pictures are money spread out all over his car. His neighbours in Ancaster, Ontario wondered where he got all that money. His parents either bought him the house or he's getting money somewhere else because he doesn't seem to work all day, he just drives up and down the street. U.S. officials say the Canadian of Kazakh origin was a hacker for hire who made it big by helping two Russian government spies attack Yahoo in 2014, one of the biggest data breaches in U.S. history. Authorities say hackers accessed at least 500 million Yahoo accounts and used the stolen information to break into Yahoo, Google and other web-based emails. Targets included Russian journalists, U.S. and Russian government officials and employees at private companies. Charges include hacking, wire fraud, trade secret theft, and economic espionage. What irks the Americans most? The two accused Russian spies are members of the Russian intelligence agency. So yeah, this is a wild one. MJ Benias and I are going to unpack this story together, but probably not in the way you'll expect. We're going to get the story straight from the source. Karim Baratov is now a little bit older, a whole lot wiser, and no longer an inmate of an American prison. And he's going to join us to share the story of how a Kazakhstani immigrant to Canada managed to earn millions, only to lose it all in such a dramatic way. So let's get into it. MJ Benias, you've been on the show a few times in the past, but it's been a while. So let's let's get caught up. What have you been doing over the last, I guess, I guess during the pandemic, it's probably been since you've been on the show last. What's going on with you? Yeah, it has been a long time. I've been uh, fairly busy. I've been doing a lot of investigation, a lot of investigative journalistic work into various stuff, predominantly kind of cults and 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 schemes and scams like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's kind of put me into this weird role where um, you know you the, the utilization of of investigative journalism to tell stories. Um, and and now I host a podcast called Cloak and Dagger, uh, which is all about 
uh, open source intelligence gathering and that community of people and and the weird stories that they have to tell about sort of the work they do in in the trenches of chasing bad guys around the world or or um you know spying on people in different parts of, of, of the planet so it's it's been a wild kind of journey into uh out of kind of canadian weird stories and into kind of this more global view of how intelligence and national security works it's been a, a weird deep dive for me yeah very weird deep dive <laughs> Um, but that said, you may have stepped out of weird Canadian stories, but the reason we're together today is because in your work producing Cloak & Dagger podcast, you've come across a weird Canadian story that kind of um, bridges weird Canadian in international espionage, uh, intelligence yeah, yeah, gathering. Yeah, this is yeah, this this is this weird crossover moment where where like at Cloak and Dagger, for example, we we talk a lot about cybercrime and and hacking and stuff like that. Um, but this this story kind of uh, it, it came it hit my desk and I said, you know who would be a perfect like podcast host to cover this? It would be Jordan from the Nighttime Podcast because you know the Nighttime Podcast covers these strange, bizarre stories, true crime from sort of like the darkest parts of canada the shadiest back alleys of of this yeah. country um and and this story literally is, is is a canadian story and it covers the shadiest and darkest part of the internet um mm. those parts of the internet where people don't often venture uh, and if they do um you know they often end up getting in trouble so so this is kind of a good back alley internet true crime story that i think is perfect for nighttime now, when you came to me with the story, I recognized the name Karim Baratov. When I entered it into my Google search, I saw photos of him that I recognized, and then it just all clicked. Oh my God, this is that guy who was uh, a, a young um, hacker who got arrested in Ontario uh, that had connections to you know Russian meddling and had millions of dollars and fancy cars. And it was a surprise to all his neighbors. Um, I had I remember that story coming out in the news, but I just completely forgot about it. Why now? I guess it's been four or five years. Does it come across your desk? And and how do you have access to this man? Yeah, it was. It's a really strange story. So where, where I work, um, you know, we often engage with um, you know investigations into different you know intelligence or or security issues. You know, and cybercrime is definitely sort of a thing that pops up. And, uh, you know, I've been hosting now the Cloak and Dagger podcast for for a few months now. We're at episode 15 or 16. So, you know, it's 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 been rolling along. And somebody kind of just sent me a random email being like, hey, you know, here's a story you should cover if you're looking for more cybercrime stories. Um, and they sent me the name Karim Baratov. And I was like, yeah, this name sounds really familiar. And I, and I Googled it just like you. And I was like, oh, my God. And I did like so automatically I went into full MJ Benias investigation mode and I started <laughs> pulling everything off the Internet. I could. I have a, a great research uh, person who helps. A shout out to Tiara. She went out onto the Internet and helped as well, scraped the Internet and basically created this amazing report on him. Uh, and and we we kind of put this together and um, it, it was like, this is definitely a story. There's this is a cool, compelling Canadian story that that I want to tell. and I want to tell it with Jordan because it so fits into your uh, into your kind of nighttime world mm -hmm. um so because there's intrigue and mystery and there's spies and and and, <laughs> and russians i mean it's so good yeah certainly but let me ask you this though you come to me with the uh, with the opportunity not only to help tell the story with you but to speak with 
Karim, uh, with Karim Baratov. How do you connect with him and how do you get him to agree to come on my show? And why is it not just a cloak and dagger thing? What's going on here? Well, listen, I mean, you know, cloak and dagger is a brand new podcast. Um, I'm not going to lie to you, Jordan. Your podcast is huge. I love you with all my heart. We've worked together before. You know, part of my, you know, part of my strategy here, Jordan, is to, you know, hitch my uh, my wagon a little bit to your horse here and just oh my. drag my podcast up the 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 the, the podcast chain a bit. But <laughs> more more importantly, um, you know, uh, Mr. Baratov is an interesting cat. Um, he's 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 a little different. You know what I mean? And um, you specialize in different, and and I don't. You know, cloak and dagger is is very much. Uh, uh, more of kind of telling the the straight story of like how uh, someone did something or pulled off a, a caper or 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 a, a particular scam or you know we we kind of tell those kind of more spy stories let's say Baratov's story isn't that it's 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 a little stranger seedier and and it's probably this this you know connection to Canada that we don't always focus on at Cloak mm-hmm. and Dagger yeah so so I mean you know to put it kind of into perspective you know for your listeners I mean. He is probably one of the most one of the most kind of infamous hackers in Canadian history. And and moreover, you know, his story made headlines because he was unwittingly helping a a sort of an adversary of 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 Canada um, and the United States. Okay, well, I'm excited to talk to this guy. His story's fascinating. We won't talk too much about what his story is because we're going to get into it with him. But before we do that, how do you get him to talk to me and come on this show? Was that was there much of a headlock agreement that had to happen there? I, I think he's at the stage where he wants to get his story out. I think he's at the stage where it matters to him to have the story kind of out in the open from his perspective. Um, and and you know he and I, I I connected with him sort of by social media and we started chatting and then I kind of introduced him to you and I know three of us chatted for a bit you've been chatting with him um, and he just seems generally kind of open to basically telling his his side of things um, and and I think that's kind of what probably pushed him to be willing to talk the, you know there was some kind of initial you know. You, you know, as a journalist, you, you you kind of have to build trust. So there was that, right? That kind of initial trust building um, for him to, to come on with us. But, um, he, you know, he, there has to be a willingness there. And he definitely has that. Kareem, everything I read about you tells me that you first came to Canada at around 12 years old. But I, I want to get a sense of what your life was like before this. Like before Canada, where were you and what, what brought you to Canada as a 12 year old? Um, as a 12-year-old, I didn't have much choice. Uh, wherever my parents go, I go. But uh, before I grew up in Kazakhstan, it's post uh, USSR country. So everybody speaks Russian. It's basically like Russian. Interesting. And But why Canada? How did you how did you end up here? Uh, again, I didn't have much say into this, but uh, I'm pretty sure my parents like the fact that there's strict gun laws and uh, free healthcare. I mean, they always told me there are two ways to become broke in the United States. Uh, legal fees or uh, medical fees. So at least being in Canada, it, it removes uh, one aspect. 
one possible. Do, do you remember like as a 12 year old coming from Kazakhstan to Canada, that must have been a big culture shock, especially you know, with the change in language, you were used to hearing Russian spoke, you come to a school in Canada where most people are speaking English. What was that like as a, as a young guy? It's like, uh, just like my book title, I just felt disconnected. Uh, the language was probably the biggest problem. Uh, I mean, English, I would call it one of the easiest languages in the world. Uh, so it wasn't as bad, but it, it was just different. Makes sense. And I, I saw a post, I, I think this was something you may have put on Facebook, and it was a, it had something to do with um, fitness and weightlifting and stuff, but you had shared an old photo of yourself looking completely different than you do now. It's like a young chubby guy, and you were, you were writing something about like uh, – Anytime you, you don't want to go to the gym or exercise, you look at this old photo of yourself. Was that like that photo of like a, like a chubby young man? Was that you when you showed up? Yeah, no, honestly, it's, ever since I was, uh, ever since since grade two, I remember being called a fat ass and being called fat. I, I was fat. So it, uh, it definitely did it. Again, we have an idea of you arriving here in Canada, but another, like a statement that you've, post it and i think you may have said this a few times but i think we can use this as a sort of timeline as we go through our talk the statement is something to the effect of i started when i was 12 at 14 i was making more than my parents combined and at 15 i got my first million so with that statement as a sort of timeline first of all like is that accurate like is that is that a true quote and do you think that's a fair representation of getting into this honestly i think it's downplaying it really but, i mean uh, crime pays well it pays but it also costs as we'll, we'll get into as it we all. as we go later oh it costs so let's start then it's it, you know I, I know a lot of young people who get into computers and all this stuff but you know to be making that kind of money at 14 and 16 <laughs> let's start back at around 12 though because that's when you say when you got into it how did you get into computers, you know, beyond, you know, playing video games with your friends and stuff? Like, you obviously have a background on this. What's, what's your background in computers as a young guy? Honestly, uh, there were no video games because my computer was not, I mean, my, my parents were not wealthy. My computer was pretty garbage to play anything beyond games from 1990s. And... Mm -hmm. The language was a big barrier, so honestly, I just spent uh, all my free time learning how to code, yep, specifically web coding. And was that like why coding? Yeah. Like why why was that? You're you're you know you're twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen years old. Why was coding that thing you attached to? I just like technology in general. Uh, growing up, I was uh, very obsessed with cell phones. Uh, just anything that was technology. Let's get this though. So you, you get into technology, you get into coding, you're um, uh, presumably you're online hanging out in a lot of different circles with other people with similar interests. I want to hear about the first time you actually did something with a computer, be it legal or illegal, that ends up with you making money. Like we'll call it your first job. Oh, my dad. Uh, genius lost his password and uh, he asked me, hey, can you recover it? I mean, obviously the answer was no, but I still tried. And after about a thousand unsuccessful, unsuccessful attempts, I started Googling, hey, um, you know, email hacking for hire. And uh, 
back then the internet wasn't as filtered as it is right now plus um, you know russian internet that's like next level unfiltered and i <laughs> i stumbled onto this website um this guy he was offering email hacking services uh, so why not i gave it a shot and uh the next day i got an email with my dad's mailbox so it was his screenshot for sure I mean, nobody was getting paid because I was 12 and I didn't have any money, but it gave me the motivation because that way it was possible. It just gives you a kind of a glimpse behind the curtain yeah. of, you know, what someone could do. So you, you find this person to unlock your dad's account or whatever. You learn that this is a possibility or people are doing this. When, when do you decide, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do it or I'm going to make some money like when is the first time that you recall someone giving you money to do something related to this Honestly, it wasn't even about the money uh, so um again russian internet is not filtered at all you would literally define forums with people just posting their research uh, their open codes and instructions and all the different tests so um Probably, it took about probably three to four months to actually learn and get into it until I was successful in recovering my dad's password. So after this, I just started posting on forums, hey, I'll, I'll help you out for free, you know, because I did not expect anybody to pay for this. So it's like, okay, I was doing it for free for about uh, probably two months, just helping out people. Um, I stumbled upon this wealthy Russian woman who was, was getting divorced and I helped her. I didn't want nothing for it, but she said the, it's like a gift card activation. You know, the, you enter the code and you get a hundred bucks. So she just left it there and, you know, not to go to waste. I opened an account, I activated the cards and, uh, I was like, wow, you know, make money online. I was like, okay. You know, it's just some extra pocket money to go to a movie theater or something. And uh, so then I made a post. Okay, uh, it's not free anymore. I will charge 50 bucks. Again, I did not expect anybody to pay for this. But the first month I did made over three grand. And for a 12-year-old, that's a lot of money. So, so your 12-year-old 12, 12 Karim is like sitting online and some old Russian, like sorry, rich Russian lady reaches out yeah. and she's getting a divorce and she just needs you to, to do what? Just uh, her husband's password, that's it. Hack into Email. like... Okay. <laughs> yep. I think we can use our imagination with why she wanted to get into the guy she's divorcing's password. I'm, I'm sure he had uh, some explaining to do the next day oh after that gift card was delivered. Man, honestly, the stuff I've seen in people's mailboxes, I wish uh, I wish I could unsee, but uh, <laughs> yeah. It, of course, what you were doing, I'm sure you knew it was illegal to some extent, but did you have any other like kind of criminal background or would this, do you think this would be the first time you actually were knowingly like breaking the law yeah that, that would probably be the first time but the thing is when you break the law online it feels very disconnected because first of all like the victims are in russia and the crime is privacy not many people care about privacy mm -hmm. no I, I get it and that's we'll get to your book later but that's why you you call it disconnected is it, is it because of the feeling of like disconnection as you were doing the crimes? Um, that title has a lot of meanings, but 
But yes. Okay. So you begin doing these kind of like little odd jobs, uh, advertising it for, you know, 50 bucks a pop or something. Was there any kind of like any kind of plan going forward? Like, did you think like, I'm going to make a career out of this? Or was it just kind of like kind of hacking like uh, hand to mouth, like 50 bucks, I spend it, 50 bucks, I spend it. Or was there this grand plan? Oh, not at all. I didn't have any plans. I thought it was like a side hunt. So honestly, I thought it would die down um, at one point. I even thought, okay, like the first 3000 I made, I just dumped it all on the laptop. <laughs> oh, God. Nice laptop. And I was like, all right, that's it. I'm done. But then the money kept coming in. It's like, all right, let's get the baddest TV out there. And then uh, I started making more than I had imagination to spend. So I started buying stupid stuff like a massage chair or a lightsaber for two thousand dollars. That's who buys those expensive lightsabers. I see them for sale sometimes. I'm like, who gets this? <laughs> and was was the vast majority of gigs that you did was it predominantly just breaking into people's email accounts? Like, was that what just people wanted? So you'd have this ad, people would email you, be like, "Here's a, a username. I need you to break into this guy's email account." Like, is that all you basically did, or was there other work as well? that you had like going in, in this sort of hacking scene? Later on, I started offering DJOS services. So basically, uh, you give me a website, obviously not a large one, but like a mid-sized website, like a small news company or whatever. And I could shut it down for as long as you want. So one day, a week, a month. It paid really well, but uh, my own website started getting attacked and it was very expensive to shield off, I think probably cost me thousands of dollars so that's when i stopped it was bad karma bad karma wow tell me a bit about your lifestyle then i can't imagine being you know 12 14 15 years old and having just thousands of dollars coming in like what what was it like then i i can't imagine how that would manifest itself as an actual childhood oh man it was uh it's being a weirdo because uh so look i didn't talk to a lot of people so that my social skills were pretty much in the floor um and uh so i did not know what was normal i would come into school wearing a two thousand dollar suit <laughs> four thousand dollar shoes but uh, just I, I would stand out and not in necessarily in a good way but I would just buy the most expensive things I would see. You, sorry, at the end there, you said you would just buy the most expensive things you would see? Yeah. What is your friend? I, I'm curious, like, what your friends thought. Like, when you roll into school in, like, a $2,000 suit and all this stuff, I mean, were people asking, like, where you were getting your money from? Like, was there, like, a line of questioning being like, what the hell, man? To be honest, they were everybody was scared shitless because... <laughs> because they did not know what was going on, so uh, ah, they were just all pretty much terrified. Yeah, I, I can imagine that. Like you, you're in Ancaster. Um, I'm from Cape Breton, it's a city called Sydney in Cape Breton. It's I don't know. It's, I think it's a little smaller than Ancaster. But if I'm in I'm in school and there's like this quiet guy from Kazakhstan with a thick Russian-sounding accent, I don't think I'm going to be grilling him on where he's getting his money. So I just like, hey, buddy with the suit. I'm on your side. <laughs> I get it. 
I mean, I told a few friends the truth. Uh, obviously, they didn't believe me. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. I, I would just assume, you know, he probably has a rich family or, you know, the reason he got here. And that's, I think this is kind of a a stereotype or something is that people will come to Canada yeah. from other parts of the world because their families are rich and able to pay their way. So I would just, I would have just assumed that, I think, if I met you. Um, at first, they were thinking, oh, yeah, okay, rich parents, but later on, uh, they were thinking, oh, okay, drug dealer. Mm. Okay. Uh, let's get into the peak of it, though. It seems like your hacking work, it's around 2017 or so that you you seem to be kind of at the height of it. You, I've, I've heard stories of... It was like 20, I think it was 2015, 2016, right? Was when it was the peak? Oh, the peak, I would say 2014 or 2015. And the reason it was the peak... Uh, so basically, I was getting paid in Russian currency, okay. rubles. Uh, so before, let's say, 1,000 rubles would be $32. Then the Crimea thing happened, mm -hmm. where Russia took Crimea from Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm. So after that, uh, they started getting a lot of sanctions. And now the same 1,000 rubles is now $15. Okay. And so the people weren't getting richer, but the currency went down. And I couldn't raise the price but also basically i was getting paid twice less which was still decent but a lot less mm. um at the point that it's at its peak though like it, it didn't seem like what you were doing was spending your money on expensive like clothes and you know uh, chairs and lights and stuff like i've heard of like a million dollar ish house exotic cars designer everything i've seen like the instagram photos of you with like these beautiful women apparently flying all over the world or whatever you were doing tell me about the height of it like how big did this get as far as spending just uh honestly it came to the point where i i didn't know what to spend on so i would just change cars party all the time mm -hmm. yeah honestly I, I did not know what to do with it wow I want to circle back to sort of the the, the more technical sides. You know, for for me, uh, you know, a lot of the the listeners are going to have an interest in sort of how you broke into emails, the sort of the technique and, and whatever. So so just kind of going over some of my notes. You know, it, you were, um, you know, it was alleged and I guess proven that you broke into something like eleven thousand email accounts on behalf of various clients <laughs> from Russian FSB to. Uh, housewives who are getting divorced. So um, what was the main process by which you you broke into people's email accounts? Like how how did you do it? Can you walk us through kind of the typical act? Uh, the weakest method would probably be spare phishing. You're posing as a support or as another person sending your documents. As soon as you open the letter, you have to click on the link and then there's a fake page with the authentic link on the top that's probably the most uh that's the easiest method you know it's 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 nothing nothing too complicated so that would be someone someone thinks they're like logging into like their hotmail to get access to you know something but that information then goes to you somehow yeah this is the most unsophisticated method then there's cross-site scripting uh there are active cross-site scripting and passive Passive means uh, I send you an email. You click on a link, I steal your cookie session, and then I can log into your account without 
having a password. Active cross-site scripting is I send you a letter from anywhere. You open the letter and that's it. I get your session. You don't have to do anything. Then the most advanced method is exploits. With exploits, it's uh, it's a JavaScript vulnerability that targets your browser, and I just receive your password right away. It grabs it straight from the browser. The best is to combine active cross-site scripting and an exploit. So I send you an email, you open it, done. You don't need to do anything else, I got your password. And the email could be something like, let's say the subject would be a proposal. You open it, and you see it's a spam, you delete it, you don't think anything of it, but already got your password, it's done. I, w- I want to get through kind of the timeline and sort of a play-by-play of the the events that that lead to you working with or for Russian intelligence. Like, uh, do you recall how like Russian intelligence officials came to contact you? How did that happen? And did you know who they were? Yeah, I, I didn't even know what happened because I did not ask my clients who they were and what they wanted because that's bad business. In that business, you don't ask questions. I know 90% of my clients were basically jealous couples and uh, business partners, worried parents. So honestly, I, I didn't even know I was a part of it until I said this. So, so hold on. So I just want to, I, I kind of want to have a picture here. So you're, you're, you're just sitting there, you're doing the gig, right? You're getting emails. People are being like, hey, we need you to, you know, can you hack into this account for me? Can you break into this account? Can you give me access? And you're just doing it. Did any of the names, like, or like yeah. the email accounts you were hacking into, did that ever, like, were you ever like sitting there being like, "Man, I've I've heard this name before" or something, and and you're just like, "Oh shit, it's like a celebrity, or it's like a politician, or it's like some Russian ambassador." Were you ever just like, "Oh, this is like, whoa, like what's what's going? On? Why am I breaking this guy's account?" Um, it happened only a few times because like yeah. his name was Sergey Matvey. He was like a Bernie Madoff of Russia. There were a few. Russian singers and celebrities that I did recognize, but other than that, no. Because I was processing over hundreds of emails every single day. And at that point, it was just time consuming. It was just like automatic, automated work. Wow. You didn't have time to kind of like Google and obsess and think about it. You're just moving on to the next thing and keeping this going. Oh, yeah. Um, at what and maybe the answer to this is that you didn't but was there a point where you realized like you were involved with some you know big deal people and this was maybe getting out of control or or, or did that like did that ever strike you or what or was it not until they showed up at your door to arrest you that you realized how deep you're in honestly at one point i started feeling a lot safer because i did get caught by CSIS, uh canadian intelligence they showed up at my house, and uh, yeah, they flashed the badge. I thought, okay, I'm toast. I'm getting arrested. We went to a nearby Tim Hortons to talk. They laid out all the files. They basically knew who I was. They knew about all my websites, and they offered me a deal. Hey, you help us, and if you have problems with the law, will tell them that you're not the droid they're looking for. That's actually the exact the exact quote. Wow. Uh, yeah, then I felt bulletproof. It's like, oh, okay, 
I can do this now. Wow. Okay. So that makes sense because CSIS, of course, that which is the Canadian intelligence service, they would be interested with foreign interference and foreign meddling. So certainly Russian hackers operating in Canada would be a concern to CSIS. So I guess their thought would be, we're going to get him with us and we'll protect him in exchange for the information so basically have you working as you know like a double agent or undercover sort of thing in in a casual relationship which would give you the feeling like if anything goes wrong you know they got my back is that like am i reading that right is that the feeling yes but in the end basically it was the united states that being canada i don't even have a criminal record okay and against the united states i can't do anything because now it's uh, it's political yeah and that, that's an interesting side of this. It's like, yeah, for one, you were doing illegal things and got busted, but you kind of got caught at like the worst time for working with Russian intelligence illegally. Yeah. Um, very few Canadians or very few people that I talk about were arrested in crimes that, you know, like Donald Trump uh, mentioned or like got involved in and stuff. And his name comes up in some of the news reports about you. So... Uh, let's get to the actual arrest. So it seems from what I read that it happened pretty suddenly and quickly. CSIS, of course, you've talked to them and they showed up at your door. But tell me when, you know, the FBI or whoever it was showed up at your door to actually take you in. How did that go down? And did you know it was coming? No, but it's weird because a week prior, uh, I've noticed a van constantly, you know, like just sort of on my street. Uh, my outside camera stopped working. Hmm. Actually, one time I came to my house and it was unlocked. Okay. And I'm very OCD. Like, I always lock. I make sure everything's locked. And, yeah, a week later it happened. Okay. So these little things you're seeing, this van, my cameras aren't working, my house is unlocked. So you're probably thinking like, am I nuts or is something going on here? So maybe you had a little bit of your intuition telling you something's up? Honestly, after doing this for 10 years, I'm not getting, I can just get lazy. What were you doing? There's a knock at the door or did they just like bang the door down? Like, like what happened? Uh, a few days ago, I just bought a, I just bought my friend's Ferrari 458. Everything was great. Uh, that day, that was the biggest snowstorm of the year. Um, so no, I just parked the car and went to sleep. And seven in the morning, we hear loud knocks on the door. Yeah, I mean, usually I ignore it, you know. But it was keep going and going and going. So I put on my clothes, I go downstairs, open the door, and I see a mailman. Uh, his first words are, okay, I've got a package for Green Baron. He looks at me. I went off on it. I was like, well, okay, yeah, like you, you couldn't just leave your package, you know, just leave a note or something. I start going off on it. He steps to the side and then there's a SWAT team. Oh. A bunch of a bunch of people coming in. And honestly, my first thought my first thought wasn't even, oh, I'm getting arrested. My first thought was I'm getting kidnapped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like like what is it? Wow. And then they yeah, and then they flashed the warrant. So now, you know, they tie me up, they start searching the house, uh, taking pictures, recording everything. Um, the snowstorm was pretty bad outside, too. The neighbors watching. Actually, uh, that day I was supposed to have an open house because I was selling my house. Uh, 
So when they took me into the car, I told them, hey, can you call my real estate, my real estate agent slash friend and tell him to not do the show. <laughs> uh, that's the funny part because I have a history of pranking my buddy all the time. So they, they, they call my buddy and I hear this too. Uh, his response was something to do with the surgeon's mom's vagina. And he just hung up. And that was it. Now, I've made a lot of phone calls to my parents uh, from bad situations, but I've never quite had to call and say something like, you know, the FBI's arrested me. I'm probably going to prison in the United States. Uh, it's hard enough to, you know, to explain my mom how to not share uh scams on facebook let alone explain to her that i'm involved in this international espionage thing what was it like to actually tell your parents what the story was and and, and how did you tell them oh they found out they found out from my uncle who is back in kazakhstan i think he texted my mom the news article that my mom just looks at it. how you know <laughs> I saw some early news clips after you were arrested where your parents um, were certainly kind of defensive and protecting you and making statements to the effect of like he wasn't involved or he's being set up. Did it take them a while to understand, you know, what you were actually up to? I mean, they knew something was going on because, you know, the thing is when it has something to do with computers, and you deal with older people, it's easy to obscure stuff. I get it. Just throw, throw some terminology and that's it. I get it. It's like, mom, I make a podcast. Yeah. And she's like, a blog? A podcast, mom. You're on the radio? <laughs> I get it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Old school, you know, mom, I do computer work online. Yeah. Uh, if I explain, you won't understand. That's the end of it. Yeah. I know. That's, I guess that makes, uh, that makes sense. But when it gets to the point that you're actually at, trial and all this information is coming up and coming out publicly like your trial is like something out of a movie because you hear you know one of the alleged co-conspirators is on like the you know fbi most wanted list for cyber criminals you have these intelligence agents with the fbs which is basically you know used to be the kgb which as a canadian that seems like um, characters from a Bond film are these people you're involved in. When you hear the list of targets that the FBI was referencing, it's, you know, politicians, leaders of banks, journalists. What you got yourself into was such a, a huge, complicated, and high-profile crime. When you were sitting in the courtroom, like, hearing this, I imagine even you were learning for the first time how big it actually was. Oh, yeah. Tell me a bit about about that when the facts start coming out in court. What was that like learning what you actually got into? Yeah, uh, the first time I realized that it was big was actually in jail when I saw my face on the news and the list of charges. Because before that, I thought, oh, okay, I'm just going to go in for a weekend. I'll get myself bailed out. That's the end yeah, it certainly did not happen. <laughs> Push eventually comes to shove. You're in the courtroom facing these charges with the reality of what you know you walked into over the last several years. Um, was there a moment where you thought you would still be able to get out of it? Or were you pretty certain while the trial was happening, you know, I'm going to go to prison for this? 
no, and until the day that I was sentenced, I didn't even know I was going to prison. I was like, oh yeah, you know, it's gonna blow over, gonna get bail or gonna be the charges. I'm gonna take the deal. That's it. And the deal was gonna be probation. Not what happened. How long did you actually get sentenced for? Um, sixty months. Uh, so five years. But out of five years, you do eighty-five percent. Fifteen percent is basically for good behavior. Okay. And you were a good guy in there, I take it. Uh, not at all. But I didn't get caught. <laughs> okay. What was it like to come out of prison? You know, after this period of time, to be, you know, not this rich computer hacker and just have to come back and live a life. What were the first days out of prison like? Well, honestly, amazing. It's probably the best feeling you can ever imagine. It, it feels better than anything. And uh, because living in the humble lifestyle, prison helps you so much that it was just going and going to Starbucks and getting coffee. It's already, it's already rewarding enough. Mm. So basically, I realized that I don't need a lot to be happy in life. Mm -hmm. It's just small things. And mm -hmm. Again, just one other thing about you coming out of prison. You were charged in the United States. You were in prison in the United States. You don't have a criminal record in Canada. So when your sentence is up, you just just go home. You're free. Yep. And no restrictions yep. um, on like internet or anything like that. You're good to go. The only, I mean, I cannot go to the United States. I cannot go to apparently Australia, New Zealand. Yeah. Pretty sure England. I'm pretty sure Japan. But. I'm not a big traveler anyway, so that's fine. Yeah, Canada's a great place. Oh, Canada's an amazing place. Uh, in terms of your perspective, though, coming out as an older guy, wiser, I, I would assume, looking back at the decisions you've made and what led to you, um, led to your fall as dramatic as it was, how do you view your past life and, and the decisions you made? Like, is, Do you have regrets? And if so, what are they? Honestly, I have no regrets because all those events led me to become a am right now. And, um, uh, you know what people say, I think everybody should go through dirt. Everybody should go through hardships to actually truly understand who they are. I think everybody should go through some sort of problems in life or challenges. Mm -hmm. Just take it as a test. Mm -hmm. Uh, an interesting challenge is exotic cars, million-dollar house, traveling the world with beautiful women. Uh, that's a, that's an interesting challenge, but I, I get what I, that wasn't the that, that wasn't the challenge. Part. <laughs> Losing it, I guess, is the hard part. I want to circle back to sort of the the why did you get caught? Um, you know, when it comes to doing, you know, when when it comes to tracking and and finding people and and you know criminal activity whatever what was your slip up what was your misstep that allowed i know i know exactly how it got because of 100 bucks so the way it happened is i was usually pretty diligent with my payment methods they were all anonymous you know like bitcoin web money um, i would buy banks in russia uh, you can even buy banks in russia named for well, different people for example they would grab a bum off the street tell him to go register a bank account they pay him off and boom now you got a bank account on somebody else's name sometimes people sell dead people's bank accounts you know 
nobody's going to come out with the money. So it's usually pretty good on that. Uh, I had a legitimate PayPal account and a legitimate business, which I only use for legitimate transactions. But um, there's this one, a lot of clients, let's say I worked with a client for two years, the specific guy, the BC, who I did not know was working for FSB. He worked with me for about three years, always paying it all Bitcoin, web money. At one point, he messaged me and said, hey, I'm on vacation and I can either pay you in three weeks or if you want, I can just send you PayPal. And if I work with him for three and a half years and nothing ever happened, all right. I trusted him and I took his PayPal, which was linked to my legitimate business. Uh, years later, he got caught. Uh, they started going over his stuff. They found the transaction, and that's it. A lot of us who see a story like this very rarely would get to talk to the person involved, let alone get to hear like every aspect of their life laid out. And that's kind of what leads me to questions about why you decided to write, I guess we'll call it a memoir or a biography. It's called Disconnected. And in it, you give like a warts and all view of what you did. I'm, I'm just going to read kind of like your setup for the book and then I want to hear about it. So the summary of the book sure. that I found is, my name is Karim Baratov, a once internationally renowned hacker for hire. I started hacking when I turned 13, a career of crime that saw me drive all my dream cars such as Lamborghinis and Porsches. I rocked in expensive clothes and bought a house for myself and my parents in my teenage years. I lived what many perceive as a dream life. However, my career was cut short at its peak around 2017 when I was arrested and charged with crimes relating to the Yahoo attack, the Yahoo hack from 2014. My, my face was flooded in local and international newspapers calling me a spy and a hacker. I'm now free after spending five years behind bars and disconnected, a true crime memoir, details my journey to the experiences of my life prior to prison and inside. The memoir is divided into four main parts, each detailing the events in my life at the particular time and setting, a chance for me to travel, uh, sorry, a chance for me to reveal what really happened. So when we get a sense from that of what you laid out to do, but tell me about why you decided to write this when you wrote it, I'm assuming in prison. Give us the the, the dirt on this. Honestly, it was something to it was just something to do, um, something to work on. When you were because, when you were in jail, yeah, I realized it was a unique experience. Plus, um, it's boring in prison, and uh, it was killing a lot of time. You know, if there's any event, I would just write it down, send it home, and such. And when I came out, I had a bunch of had a bunch of letters from myself to myself. I was just started going through them organizing them and just start typing them up. Okay. So you were just mailing excerpts of the book to yourself. You get out and that's when you put it all together and organize it? Yeah, it was something to do. Plus, I've read a lot of uh, books with a similar style. For example, uh, Jordan Belfort's uh, The Book of Wall Street, Catch Me If You Can, Horses uh, the New Black, just to see how they did it. Okay. Interesting. So what's it like, though, actually reading and writing this and, and looking at your story um, in full? Like, because, again, 
and the reason for my this question is as you're describing your crime and you know what you got into it was almost like you were disconnected from it in a lot of ways it was just happening almost automated behind you you were bored you were getting sloppy from getting away with it when the time comes that you actually lay it all down in front of you are you like holy shit like how the, how did this happen what was it like to look at this in full it's surreal mm -hmm. It seemed like it happened to somebody else. But uh, I'm glad I made it because a lot of people, they didn't even know what I did. Mm -hmm. Actually, a few people in prison, they said, oh, yeah, we're following your story. Okay, so exactly what I do. Uh, you stole money from the banks. No. You were born for Russians as a spy. No. So nobody, people knew about my case, but nobody knew what I actually did. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a chance for me to lay it all out, how it is. Mm -hmm. In, give me some uh, ideas of reactions to the book from people close to you. I'm assuming either family, mm -hmm. parents, close friends, childhood friends, they probably really learned the details of your crime from Disconnected. What have people said to you about it? Well, first of all, everybody liked the book, which is good, but uh, it's a little bit awkward because, uh, so when I was learning on how to write books. Uh, this guy named Van Cleef, I, he said, if you're embarrassed of something and you really don't want to write about it, it's a good indicator that you should. Hmm. Uh, so I laid it all out, a lot of TMI, and it's some, it, it's kind of a miracle but I also didn't, because it's awkward. Um, I asked my mom not to read it at all. Just to ignore it. Uh, she read it. She liked it. It's awkward, huh. uh, you know. But no, I'm uh, I'm glad it's out there. You know, mm -hmm. I'm glad it's done. Mm -hmm. And for people who want to read it and you know and hear the rest of your story, what's the best way for you for them to buy it? Is it Amazon or how should they get this book? Amazon is probably the best place. So you have the book out, your story's there, you're out of prison now, a free man in Canada. What comes next for you? How, what do you see in the future? And do you ever see any kind of criminal element creeping its way into your life? Um, I'm working on a lot of different projects, so honestly, just, yeah. I mean, I'm doing great right now. Just focusing on the future, taking it day by day. That was a trip, MJ. Uh, you know his story better than I do going into this. Of everything we heard Kareem talk about and reveal, was there any big surprises for you? There was a few. I mean, you know, there, there's this, there's, there's, listen, the, I, I, I've spoken to a lot of people about his story and there's a lot of people who, who I, I know and, and work with who would say, you know, listen, you can trust him to a point, but at the end of the day, he still ran a criminal enterprise from his parents' basement. You know what I mean? Like, like he mm -hmm. he is still he he's still engaged in criminal activity. And how much can you trust someone like that? Right. Which for me was was mm -hmm. kind of the biggest part. Because everything he would say, I'd be like, yeah, that that does kind of check out. But there's, you know, I wonder if there's more nuance here that that he's not getting into mm -hmm. um because of just mm -hmm. how how kind of the court case kind of all went and for me the biggest thing was his claim that he was not aware that he was working with 
uh, Russian intelligence officials. That is kind of for a lot of people where a lot of people call bullshit. I, I kind of felt the same way, but he, a part of his explanation for why he didn't realize that he was working for Russian intelligence and hacking into like journalists and, you know, CEOs of banks accounts and stuff is he blames it on this kind of like automation where he says like it was just they were just coming and going without me actually touching anything. I, I don't know enough about like hacking and the computer sure. side of things to understand how that would work, but it does seem like it does seem a little odd that he'd be able to automate it to the point that he doesn't realize that he's dealing with important people. I would have thought there would have, even aside from the actual hacking um, in the names associated with email addresses and stuff, there would just be a different way in which like Russian intelligence would have been paying him and dealing with him. They would be different than, you know, Karen who wants well, to find out what her husband's in emailing people. Okay. So, so let's, let's talk about that. Cause I think that kind of actually it matters here. I think the first thing we need to be really clear on is, is he's not lying in the sense of like how many emails, uh, and, and essentially like scams he ran, you know, in the court documents, mm -hmm. you know, the the FBI and the RCMP kind of point out he in the course of his time doing this work between like 2014 and, and 2017, he did break into like 11,000 email accounts or something um, wow. like that's a lot. <laughs> I mean, like it would have to mm -hmm. be automated at, in some capacity to, to go through that. Like he's not sitting there getting an email from somebody saying i need you to break into this this account and then he's going to hand write the email every time and send it and then be like okay and like that would all be pretty much running like some sort of, of automated business system to handle that much that that much workload mm -hmm. um so 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 you know we can kind of look at that and say well you know maybe okay maybe it was so kind of animated and there were so many requests for work that he he just couldn't pay attention to all of them. Now, as for the second part where, you know, you're saying, you know, would it be different if, let's say, like Russian FSB approached you? Like, would you have that feeling of like, oh, this is not some rich housewife who wants me to spy on her husband? This is a Russian agent. Russian FSB is very good at this. Like they are very well uh, adept at creating fake personas very well adept at utilizing those fake personas to convince you that that they are who they say they are so this is kind of really good tradecraft and and the russians are experts so you know would it be that he would have a whole bunch of of different people sending him emails and to him it'd be a whole bunch of different people but it's actually like one person or or, or two people who have let's say 500 kind of dummy accounts that they're using to, to do this. It, it's very possible that that could have happened. Wow. But he himself admitted in the interview, he had worked with clients, for example, who were return customers, right? And he never asked questions, mm -hmm. right? So he mentions, I think, uh, later stages of the interview where he had a client and, and the reason why he got caught was one of the, one of the clients he trusted paid him and they did not cover up sort of how the money came in. And that's what that's what got him busted. It basically entered like a PayPal account or something. And that's how uh, the FBI was able to track him. If you have a return customer like that, right, who who sends you email on top of email and says, I want you to do this one next and then this one next and then this one next and then this one next, you know, there's a point, I think, where, where at least I would start asking questions. But I'm not <laughs> 16, 17, 18 years old, which is... How old he was at the time. So, you know, uh, maybe I'm talking myself out of this. Maybe he didn't know. Like, I'm sitting here being like reflecting on yeah. this and being like, maybe, you know, he was just a kid. 
Yeah, it's it's true. But it's it's hard to say. I I did find he was very vague with a lot of his answers. Yeah. And I don't know if that is because he didn't remember clearly or he didn't want to reveal too much. But I felt like uh, not that we were really digging too deep into the specifics, but just the way he was wording his answers. I never really had a too clear of a picture of exactly what he was doing and how much money he had. And I don't know if that was by design in his responses. To yeah, us. well, I mean, there's there's kind of discrepancies, right? Like from his early social media posts when he was making all this money, you know, he was talking about buying like million dollar homes and, and, and buying cars and like Lamborghinis and, and Ferraris and all this stuff. You know, I think when it actually boiled down to to his claims as a 17 year old, 18 year old boy um, to what kind of came out in the court records of how much money he was actually earning. It wasn't as much as he was sort of claiming. Right. So there was, there was very much a sort of young man's bravado, I think of, of like, look at all this cash I'm rolling in, you know, go into the club, you know, flipping bills in the air, like that type of thing. And it wasn't actually that lucrative it was it was lucrative like don't get me wrong like he he did make a significant amount of money way more money than i'll probably make in my life but but um you know it was not to the point where he was you know buying his own jet kind of thing you know he wasn't mm -hmm. like making hundreds of yeah. millions of dollars for example he made i think a couple a couple million maybe you know to put it kind of into perspective like he he was essentially helping the russian government collect dirt on the people they needed to collect dirt on in order to essentially put pressure on them to become assets for, you know, the Russian government to utilize wow. as sort of intelligence agents against, you know, Western countries like the United States and Canada. You know, when we think about how spies operate or how, how, how like this, this whole operation works is, is you essentially gain access to people's, let's say an email address, a, per, a personal email address. Well, you can use that for a lot of a lot of things, right? You can one just mine it for straight up information. Other potential contacts, you can mine for bank account information. Like you can mine it just for like the stuff that I can steal from you. Mm -hmm. But moreover, if there's anything sensitive in there, for example, mm -hmm. you know, I can use that against you to to put pressure on you in order to work with me, right? If I know, for example, you're having an extramarital affair and that will destroy your career and your life. Um, you know, I can use that as a pressure point to say, listen, I'm not going to say anything so long as you go to work tomorrow, there's a folder on your desk, I need you to photocopy it, put an envelope and mail it to me. Then I'll leave you the fuck alone. Mm -hmm. Can I say fuck on your show? Sure. <laughs> then yeah, I'll leave absolutely. you the fuck alone, right? But that folder contains really sensitive information, right? So you've essentially, you've essentially kind of committed espionage. And that's mm -hmm. kind of how they work, right? This is how, how, how intelligence agencies work. They, they'll find those pressure points on you or they'll find things that, that, that they can utilize to turn you into an asset for them. And then all of a sudden you're providing them with information that they need for various reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Um, which creates kind of other pressure points across other situations. Mm -hmm. So he did a lot of damage. <laughs> like Karim Baratov could have potentially like leaked a lot of secrets kind of unknowingly, not him personally, but the, the information he gave to the Russians, for example, according to him unwittingly, um, could have done significant damage to Canadian interests uh, abroad. Another thing that surprises me is why him? It seems like there's a lot of people involved in this kind of hacking. Uh, one of the people that were arrested alongside of him, I think is someone that was on the FBI's most wanted cyber criminal list. Um, some people are under the impression that Mr. Baratov was kind of thrown to the wolves as like, if we go down, this is the guy they're going to catch. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think that may be a part of the reason the Russian intelligence sure. officials were interested in him? 
yeah so so i mean we already we need to be super clear he was the only one arrested oh um, he was okay the th yeah three other men were charged in this uh in this crime however all reside in russia so oh. the fbi and and obviously western intelligence agencies or, or western law enforcement are not able to apprehend them right and they're still at large and they do the the the, the other <laughs> the other three individuals who kind of are involved in this case are 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 two of them are well known fsb cyber intelligence operatives they they are number 1 and number 2 on the fbi's most wanted list for cyber crime number 3 is a sort of contractor they hire out he's kind of a younger guy much like karim i think he was in his 20s at the time uh and he's just a young guy that they kind of contract out and all these guys basically live in like moscow and st petersburg so they're not going anywhere like you know, they, 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 these guys are going to be very well protected. They're also going to be, they're, they're going to be ghosts out in the world, right? They're going to be traveling under multiple passports. Like there's no finding them would be quite the feather in anyone's cap. Um, there's a reward out, for example, like, I think you can earn yourself a quick cool million dollars if you can provide information to their apprehension. Um, what, what, what we do see though is yes, exactly. He was essentially thrown to, to the wolves. Um, there was no kind of intention, I think, on on the Russian side to like get him out, or there was no exit plan because he, he was a, kind of this unwitting part participant. He had no idea what he was who he was working for. So for them, he was just kind of this useful tool that they could use that would be doing the work from an IP address not in Russia, right? From like a localized IP address functioning in Canada, for example, or the United States. So you have someone who who can access stuff. Uh, and it's not going to pop up on anyone's radar, really, because it's showing up from kind of our side of the pond and our side of, of oh. let's say, the kind of of <laughs> of the second Cold War, let's say that's occurring. Yeah. Um, so so, you know, we we're he, he's kind of this this kind of useful tool that I think was utilized. Um, and, and I have to be honest, he's probably not the only one. He's just the only one who got caught. Um, and that is kind of a key point here. It is highly unlikely that that the FSB was using one person to do this. They most likely had dozens and dozens of others who were doing the exact same thing. Again, probably unwittingly, they just covered their tracks better. And Mr. Baratov got busted because he slipped up. Interesting. As a person, though, aside from his crime, just in hearing him talk, I think I was surprised at how, like, soft-spoken and... Oh, my gosh. Just, just, like, he came across as, like, a really nice guy. Other than yeah, his he voice was super was a bit mellow. Deep. Yeah, his voice is a bit deeper yeah. than I thought. But other than that, he was yeah, very mellow and unassuming. Yeah, that was that was the biggest thing. I mean, he's you know he's I'll, I'll be honest, like he's he's a, he's a pretty handsome guy. He's you know he works out. He's he's quite physically fit. He's he like you know he's he has the 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 physique and the 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 kind of outward character to be someone who you would think would be incredibly charismatic, incredibly outgoing. He would be. You know, he could sell you, you know, he could sell you your own, you know, gold watch if if he needed to. You know what I mean? Like you get that impression just by looking at him. But then you talk to the guy and he's the opposite. He is like a teddy bear. He is like this really cool, calm, very chill guy. Doesn't does, like, as you said, he's not like over assuming or anything. He just he's just kind of super mellow. He doesn't say a lot. He, he's I wouldn't say he's stoic, but he's a little laconic, right? He doesn't get into a lot of detail. Mm -hmm. You know, he's just kind of this is just how it is, guys. Um, mm -hmm. No, no need to get excited. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's kind of his his kind of mantra um, and just his how he is, right? Yeah, he's he's totally not what I imagined. Um, when when from from moving from let's say like Instagram chat 
and and just what I've read about him and researched about him and, and doing the deep dive into him to like talking to the guy. Mm. There's two different people in my head. Right. It, it does seem it, but there were, were some shades of what I expected. He did talk a bit about like, because uh, I, I kind of suspect it, you know, you get into the stuff, you make a fortune, it would be really hard not to go back to it. He made it clear he would not consider that kind of life, but he was, he is into like, you know, like, uh, I think he told me he was considering a career as a professional gambler. And I'm just like, oh, that's, it's <laughs> kind of adjacent, yeah. I guess. He's just yeah, he's, he's like you know, a real smart guy. I, and I think that's what it is. I think he's just, he's incredibly smart. I think, um, I, I think that he, he, when he was a younger man, you know what I mean? If he didn't make sort of the, the slip ups that he made, he never would have been caught. Um, and, and he's, he's still, you know, his name, we would not be talking about him right now. Mm-hmm. And I think what, what kind of got him busted was just, you know, that 17 year old feeling of like, I'm invincible. Mm-hmm. Now that he's a little older, um, you know, probably a little wiser, you know what I mean? No one's bulletproof. So so you get to this kind of point of of wisdom. <laughs> and and I think, you know, he's probably learned a lot and he's probably realized there's there's other ways of making really great money easily. You just you can do it legally and you can do it without having to involve um, <laughs> Russian federal agents. <laughs> <laughs> good, good way to put it. Uh, well, we'll start wrapping it up with this. But MJ, I can't thank you enough for sharing the story with me. But uh, both sharing the story with me in terms of telling me about it and giving me access to the insides of this, but also agreeing to come on the show and uh, convince uh, Kareem to come on the show as well. This has been fascinating, eye-opening. It's the kind of story you would never think happens here in Canada. It seems like it's pulled from a Bond movie. And, and, and yeah, and, and that's sort of, I, I love to, to to sort of reiterate this. I mean, this is the kind of stuff, you know, I deal with sort of at work often. And and um, it's interesting to think that, you know, Russia, for example, in this case, you know, just approaches young people online and says, hey, you know, you want to make some easy money, right? And you got to think how many Canadian kids are out there potentially listening to the show being like, yeah, actually, hold on a second. <laughs> and now we'll potentially be like, Oh shit! I might be working for Russian intelligence and not know it. And and you know, like ultimately, I hope there's a bit of a a lesson learned by by Mr. Baratov's story that kind of all of us are potentially targets for um, this type of activity. So uh, it, it it doesn't matter who you are, you could end up being a Russian spy. I want to thank you for joining MJ, Kareem, and I for this discussion. If you're interested in learning more about Kareem's story, his book, Disconnected, is available on Amazon right now. I'm going to add a link to it in this episode description to get you there. Additionally, if you want to hear more about the technical side of his crime, MJ will be publishing a version of this episode on the Cloak & Dagger podcast feed that will feature some additional content specifically related to his show's focus. You can find Cloak & Dagger wherever you're listening to Nighttime. Now I'm going to wrap up this episode, but before I do, let me end with thanks. First, a big thanks to MJ and Kareem for sharing an evening with me and with you, the listeners of Nighttime. I'd like to thank LJ from the Dystopian Simulation podcast, who provides this series intro and outro voiceovers, and Monty Data, who contributes the music. But then lastly, and most importantly, a massive thanks goes out to each and every one of you listening to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, this show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. Now on the topic of support, let me thank the newest subscribers to the premium feed. 
Lolly, Kara, and Anna. Thank you for going premium. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show, you can help us out in a variety of ways. First of all, a premium feed subscription costs only a couple dollars a month, and that money funds the creation of the show. But perhaps even more importantly, a premium feed subscription gives you the episodes two days early, gives them to you ad-free, and gives you access to a full back catalog of nighttime episodes. If that sounds like something you're interested in, you can go premium right now at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And if you don't want to go premium, you can still help the show out by simply sharing this episode on social media and letting like-minded friends know why they should listen. Your support and growth is very much appreciated. Now to close this all off, let me just remind you all to take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte.